Welcome to the Evolving Executive Podcast, the podcast for executives and other leaders who want real talk about what it takes to be a leader and the lessons you learn along the way. I'm your host, Mary, from Evolve Your Performance, and I'm excited to share some amazing conversations I've had so that we can learn together. Before we get started, I've got a gift for you. As an executive and leader, I understand all too well how taking action on what you learn is just as, if not more important than the learning itself. That's why every month I'd share the most important knowledge nuggets from the interviews, along with my insights on how to take action. If you're interested in leveling up your leadership and receiving the show notes from today's and other episodes, you can sign up at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. Today, I am excited to welcome Julia Napini to the podcast. Julia is a clinical and forensic social worker who owns a group practice in Fall River, Massachusetts called Compassionate Counseling Company, say that three times fast, and a consulting business called Compassionate Consulting Company, where she helps clinicians start, expand, and diversify their practices. She's also the host of the Compassionate Climb podcast, where she discusses the challenges of being successful in business while maintaining integrity. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here, and I feel like this is timely to discuss leadership and that journey. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. So let's jump right into that and talk about your leadership story a little bit. When's the first time you remember thinking that leadership might be for you? What's that light bulb moment when you realized, hey, I might be a great leader and really enjoy it? It was actually as soon as my first sibling was born. So I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger brothers. So I feel like it was ultimately birth order. I didn't necessarily ask for that to be the only female, to be the oldest, but it has truly shaped every aspect of my life. So that was the first time. But then I would say throughout my professional journey, I always gravitated toward leaders, role models, mentors, really sought people out for their expertise and their guidance. And having supervisors, managers, and leaders that had some great qualities and some not great qualities is really, I think, what has shaped the type of leader that I've become. Okay, great. So what what are those things? Like if you had to say some of the, uh, tell a story about an experience that really shaped Mm. who you are as a leader today, what Mm -hmm. would one of those stories be? So I think I have learned how important it is for a leader to never lose sight of what it's like to be in the trenches, in the direct line of service. So I can think of a particular experience where I was working for a hospital. And the person that I reported to ultimately was a nurse and not a social worker. So as much as I learned to really broaden the scope and think about things with more of a medical model, I also found myself providing a lot of education around the mental health model. And it was really challenging because I was coming into every conversation and situation with that hat on. And I had to recognize that that was not necessarily her initial instinct. And to have faith that we would eventually get there and that we established that type of relationship where we could work it through. And there were other social workers in the department so that we could all kind of collectively get that support from each other and come together. 
but that I wasn't necessarily going to always get that at the outset. So I think that's a really key piece that I've taken with me. I never want to lose sight of the clinical work, the clients, and that direct care and practice. I love that. So how does that show up in you as a leader, you know, now leading your own practice? Uh, How does that kind of keeping touch with that frontline Mm. worker translate into how you choose to lead? Are you more collaborative? What are the things that you do that uh, resulted from that? Collaborative is a good word. That's definitely one of our core values as a practice. I definitely had clearly in my mind when I made the decision to transition from a solo practice to a group was only going to do that if I could confidently create the type of environment and practice that I would want to work for and that we would only ever grow to a point where I still felt like I had the pulse of what was going on in the practice and that there were these touch points with each clinician. So In the beginning, I wore all the hats. So not only being the practice owner and the boss, but also supervising all of the clinicians. And then as we started to grow, I recognized how challenging that can be, not only to manage that many people, but also that those two roles are so different. And it can sometimes get really complicated when you as the boss are also the one providing supervision. And as much as you try to maintain that professionalism and transparency and openness, I really felt that it was a better choice to ultimately promote some leadership within the team and have others serve in that supervisory role. So I think there was that piece. I think there's also a lot of wearing a lot of the hats at the outset and then kind of eventually transitioning to those that maybe even do it better and having faith in their opportunity and their ability to really shine. And so that was a big one that um, I still at this point supervise a small group of the clinicians, but I'm more supervising those in that leadership position now. And I still maintain at a minimum, a monthly check-in, we call it, with each clinician. So that's an opportunity for them and for me to really just check in with them as a person, as a human. How are they doing? And then on the work front, are they getting enough support? Is there anything that's come up that they feel is important to talk about? They kind of get that undivided attention and direct contact with me. And then we do a whole variety of other things as well, like clinician engagement surveys and um, opportunities for people to provide feedback. When we do our reviews, they rate themselves in addition to me rating them. And they also get the opportunity to rate me as a supervisor, as a practice owner. So those are some of the things. Love that. So yeah, so just um, to kind of reiterate some of the things that I hear you saying is Mm -hmm. just to make sure I hear them right. So you do skip level meetings with everybody in your organization. So mm-hmm. they don't necessarily direct, take day-to-day direction from you anymore, but they still have a monthly touch point with you. I think yes. That's fabulous. Along with that 360 feedback performance review is another great way to build that trusting culture. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'd love to kind of d- dive in a little bit more in is kind of the bravery that you showed in that transition from... I have control over everything <laughs> and as as kind of frustrating and overwhelming as that can be there's still a comfort in that yeah. to I need to trust the people that I've hired because they can potentially do it better than I can and I need to give them that space to do that mm-hmm. 
think back to that transition when you were making it in your organization. How did you kind of act in that brave way and lean into that transition and, and work through it? I appreciate you using the word brave. I haven't really thought of it that way. But what I would say is that it is one of actually the most challenging parts about business ownership and managing a team. But it is also one of the most essential and rewarding components if you are ultimately going to promote longevity, if you are ultimately going to maintain the type of culture that I want to maintain. And so if I were to look back at that transition point, it all started with making the decision to transition my caseload of clients to the clinicians that I hired. So when I started to hire, I initially had started with two full-time clinicians and they had very different styles and specialties. And so when I made the decision that to be the type of leader that I wanted and needed to be, I really needed to prioritize that and was not ultimately able to successfully juggle both roles. I had to have that very difficult conversation with those clients that I had been working with some of them for years, but I was able to do it in such a conscientious and warm handoff type of a way where they had ample notice. It was a process. We had the opportunity to do a session, including the new clinician, so that I could in real time share the progress and review their treatment and discuss their active goals and really allow them that opportunity to kind of ask questions of that clinician and vice versa and help to alleviate some of the anxiety. And they also had access to the records and a transfer summary and all of the key points. And I could still maintain some level, because it was hard for me, of involvement on the periphery because at that point I was supervising each of those clinicians. So to be able to say to those clients, which was actually a beautiful thing, I'm still here. I'm still available. I'm going to check in with you. You don't feel like this is the right fit. This isn't working for you. Call me. But that I'll also be that person that is checking in with this clinician about cases. And I will still have an idea of how you're doing and making sure that things are okay. So that was incredible. And that has obviously shifted now with the growth of the practice, but that was really that turning point for me of relinquishing some control, but doing it in a way that I would want it done if the roles were reversed and being in a position where I could implement that okay. and having incredible clinicians that those clients could see and really be able to vouch for them and say, you're in good hands. So that that empathy, right? In terms of empathy with the client, empathy with the clinician, because it could be kind of intimidating to say, okay, I'm taking over this caseload, but then the person who used to be doing it for years is now my boss, you know, that could be kind of intimidating. Yes. So that kind of empathy in that way, especially when it comes to that communication and vulnerability with the client, how, how did you manage that in terms of sharing enough so that they knew that you were being empathetic and they felt like it was a transparent process mm. but not sharing the dirty laundry or dirty mm -hmm. dishes or any of the other like because I'm scatterbrained and you take up too much time kind of right. making them feel that way how did you balance that kind of trust and empathy with protecting mm -hmm. protecting as well well first of all I appreciate you speaking to what that experience was like for those clinicians and intimidating is definitely an appropriate word and they handled it with grace and they did 
have done phenomenal work with those clients. From the client perspective, what I would say is that I fortunately had the types of therapeutic relationships with them where I had really kind of weaved that in and that was already part of my style, where some of them had been working with me long enough to know that I was a mom because they had seen me pregnant. Some of them were with me through a transition from a group practice to my own practice. Uh, being able to share with them that the practice was expanding and, and we were hiring more clinicians. So to some extent, in either a professional or kind of unavoidable way, they had been along for a big portion of my journey. And so when it came time to share this with them, I was able to do it and approach it knowing what I knew about them in a way that I anticipated it would be better received and that I was very you say empathy that's another core value of ours for sure like there was a, a lot of consideration for how they were going to take the news but there was also a lot of thought around like I am human like this is not easy for me either this was not a decision I came to lightly this is something that I have been thinking a lot about but I also put a lot of thought into this process and I want you to know that I have thought of you and what I think may work best for you and that you got to say and like not only are we going to talk and process and deal with all the feelings you have around this, but there are going to be some concrete steps that are going to help to make this smoother. And they had enough trust in me, fortunately, that I was not going to lead them astray and that I was still going to be a part of that process. And to be honest, it's unfortunate, but the majority of people who had previously been in therapy had had negative experiences. Clinicians in an agency that just abruptly left with no notice or clinicians that were not maintaining professional boundaries and overshared, or, you know, I can go on and on with scenarios. And I think that they really knew that this was set apart from that and that they were definitely considered in the situation. I love that. And it has so much um, kind of the, the 50,000 level view of that has so much implication for other areas as well. Like mm -hmm. the, you know, your answer of, well, I built trust from the beginning, duh, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I had it there from the beginning, you know, that's what you're talking about. I'm an organizational change person, right? That's an organizational change. You were ushering people, setting people up for success for mm -hmm. that transition. And, you know, be basically saying I've set it up so that they trusted me from the you know when we when I announced the change mm -hmm. they trusted that I had their best interest at heart yeah they you know they trusted and when I told them that I had thought through this and considered them and developed a process and it wasn't going to be it was going to meet them where they are and mm. walk with them instead of just force them to the new way all of those have such bigger implications for just managing any kind of people change in any organization in yeah. terms of the the ability to be to to you can't have a successful transition like that without the foundations that you mm. had already set up um, so I just love how that's an example of um you know this idea of moving forward and making those changes and acknowledging as the leader that it's hard for you too mm -hmm. but you put the thought into it I think that you've that to me is just a perfect little myopic mm. example of, of change. I appreciate you saying that. And I guess looking back on it, I was ultimately, and I have 
honestly done this throughout my career is I'm a very, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram one reformer, perfectionist. And so for me, it's the gut triad. So I'm very big on intuition and kind of going with how I feel. So I can honestly attribute a lot of where I've ended up in this world. Something is presented to me and I have to figure out how to navigate it. And my go-to is how do I feel about it? What is going to ultimately get me to a point where I feel okay with my decisions and my course of action and just hoping that other people understand and appreciate. And fortunately, I've developed some good communication skills and some empathy that have helped along the way. But I'll be honest, I did not have any experience in management or leadership before I started a practice. I had supervised clinicians. I had supervised interns. So that was kind of one example. And always, I guess, took on a leadership position in any job I had because that's just in my nature. But there was not a, an official title or an official role that prepared me for this. So for you to say that, it almost seems like it was like pre-planned and, you know, yeah, of course you develop that trust at the outset. It was not a conscious thing. It was more like, this is what I would want and so this is ultimately how I'm going to conduct myself and hope for the best. Well, and I love that because that, it you know, it takes back to empathy or even if you don't want to talk about it in, you know, touchy-feely terms, it's being able to put on different hats, right? And and say like, okay, I'm wearing the Julia hat and this is what my gut's saying, mm -hmm. but now I need to wear the client hat. Yeah. How are they going to react? Now I need to wear the clinician hat. How's mm -hmm. my team going to react? And, you know, I, from myself, I, I legitimately put on, not not literally, but I put on a mental hat yeah. and really put myself in a new position so that it's still relying on that gut feeling, but from mm -hmm. a, that different lens. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing and really using empathy almost as part of your, your decision-making, like as the, yes. the biggest decision-making tool. So I wouldn't have necessarily identified it in that way. But when you explain it, everything that you're saying makes perfect sense and is definitely in alignment with how I operate. But what I will say is that has also not always been a positive thing. So I can speak ah. to how as I've grown this practice and we are now at the level that we are, I realized that when I started out, I had this assumption that I was unaware of that if I created the type of practice I would want to work for, then the right people would just come and that this would be a good fit for them too. And I think I've had to learn that harsh reality that empathy never stops. And I, a lot of times have to consciously deal with my own emotion about something get really clear and have that self-awareness of where it's coming from within me and then put that aside. And when I sit with someone and I meet with them or I review their survey responses or we're in a review, I don't lead with that anymore. And I also recognize that I have to be so clear on the origin, like where I'm coming from and why I feel the way that I do and not assuming that that is going to necessarily get conveyed the way I intend to everyone. They're not coming from the same place. They didn't necessarily have the experiences. They definitely didn't have all of the experiences that I had in my family of origin, previous jobs, throughout academics that have shaped me. They have their own. And so that's a piece that I find so fascinating and I thoroughly enjoy 
is being able to form, fortunately, those types of relationships with individuals where they've shared a lot of that. And so now we come in with, I can now share a little bit more about my experience and why I made the decision that I did, but starting from your place and hearing that first. And then I find people are much more open to what I may have to share because they've been heard, which really is what empathy is about, right? It's like in any relationship, if you lead with you, if you lead with your emotion, your feeling, your you're going to shut down potentially opportunities for that person to be their real self with you. So I try to be mindful of that. I love that. And mm. it makes me think of conflict mm -hmm. and, and making constructive, making conflict constructive. So Definitely. tell me a little bit about your experience in your leadership journey about removing the personal hurt feelings and mm -hmm. having and creating constructive conversations around, you know, conflict points. Well, you're making me realize that none of this was by chance, that like everything happens for a reason. So you're making me think about my decision to become a forensic social worker. So I myself went through a divorce. And as anyone who has been in that experience and had a child or children knows, co-parenting is a very unique relationship. And I had to not only deal with all of my own emotions about ending a marriage while continuing to work, continuing to raise my child, continuing to show up for the rest of my family, and being considerate of this other human being who shared a portion of their life with me's feelings about all of it, because they did not respond to my decision the same way that I, I did. And so through that journey, I ultimately decided once I discovered that a mental health professional can undergo the training to mediate divorces, be a parenting coordinator, so really help those parents post-separation or divorce that might be struggling with that co-parenting relationship, manage the conflict, reach agreements, compromise, collaborate. I was taking skills that I had already developed as a human, but also as a therapist and doing a lot of couples counseling. And then now was really focused on that problem solving with this legal lens, you know, keeping the family law system in mind, but then also never losing that humanity of someone who has been through it. I live it every day. She's 10 years old now. So that's a lot of co-parenting under our belts. We have so much more to go. And I am a true testament to if you employ these skills, it enhances not only your life, but it enhances your child's life more than I ever thought. And so having that dialogue and prioritizing her through all of it, but using a lot of these skills that we're talking about in that relationship with her father even when it's hard, even when I'm triggered, even when he's gotten under my skin, even when he's making a choice that maybe I wouldn't make, I lead with that every time. And it always ultimately gets me to a place where I can stand behind my choices. I feel good about them. And we have mutual respect. That's fabulous. I love how that kind of personal hardship, right, mm -hmm. has really helped uh, craft you as a leader yes. and how you show up as a leader every day. Mm, it has. So we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the different kind of almost accidental successes, some of the challenges that you, you have had. I'd love to hear, you know, a lot of times leaders are 
have a little bit of a rebel streak in them. I'd love to hear kind of like a harebrained idea that you implemented that everybody thought you were crazy, but it's really worked out for the best. Oh my God, that is such a great question. And I actually would not identify as a rebel at all. So I think I've always been the, especially with that personality type that I talked about, staying in your lane, following the rules, doing things by the book. So let me- I hate to break it to you, but somebody who started their own practice has to be a little bit of a rebel. (laughs) We just go with that. So I will definitely agree with you. Now I am also a consultant. So I help other clinicians start, expand, diversify their own practices because of exactly what you're speaking to. It was such a leap of faith. And I left a job that was predictable, consistent, salary, benefits, and took the plunge, obviously with planning and preparation, but that was a huge shift for me. And something that if you had asked me if I would ever do something that risky, I probably would have questioned But now here I am and I can't see my life any other way. It was the absolute best decision that I made. I have never regretted it. And even throughout the challenges when I did it, I was so clear on why. And I needed those other experiences to push me because I knew that I was never going to get what I was looking for working for anyone else. No one fully embraced all of my core values. No leader was going to exemplify all of those qualities that I hold in such high regard. So the only way for me to do it was to be that leader. And I am not saying it's perfect. And I'm not saying that there isn't still room for improvement. And I'm always open to feedback and making adjustments, but I needed to start my own path. And so, okay, thank you for that. That was the one. Uh, Fabulous. So I want to kind of talk about values almost like your rally cry right Mm -hmm. like that you know one of the things that really struck me in our pre-interview conversation Mm -hmm. was this idea of leading with integrity and that using values instead of outcomes or instead of something else as your rally cry to bring in the right people both Mm -hmm. clinicians and clients and everything else people who value what you value talk a little bit to me about how you decided about this kind of leading with values first and Mm -hmm. some of the experiences you've had there? It came in time. So everyone recommends that when you start a business, create a business plan, know your mission, vision, and values, know your why. And I had all of those swirling around in my head, but when you're starting the business and it's just you and you're bootstrapping and you're wearing all the hats, I'll be honest, those were not necessarily at the forefront of my mind. It was more of like, I'll get there. And I actually think that that worked out so well because when I did ultimately sit down and I formulated all of that, like I always was clear on my why, but all of the other pieces, I was so much more prepared to have a comprehensive list and a clear vision of like, okay, so somebody reaches out to Compassionate Counseling Company, they're looking for therapy. How can I ensure that They have a positive experience. They get what they're looking for. Their goals are met. They're ultimately able to lead a more fulfilling, successful life. And 
I was really able to articulate that and not only be able to express it, but then I had to put it in writing. I had to now have this working document that I use when I'm hiring or when I'm trying to determine if someone's the right fit. So yeah, it wasn't something I was necessarily all that clear on at the outset. I feel like it has absolutely evolved and I could not be more clear on it now. Fabulous. So how, tell me a little bit about, cause to me, compassion is a very value driven word. Mm-hmm. Did that come, did that come from, at the beginning as part of your why and just having it in totally. your orbit? So when you obviously start your business, you're always encouraged that, especially if you're going to form a team, eventually steer clear from using your name because people are only going to ultimately want to work with you. And so fortunately, I got good advice in the beginning and I wanted to come up with something that I felt could grow with me, but also encompassed what I was trying to put out there in the world. And I'll be honest, that was actually the hardest part about starting a business, coming up with that name that I could stand behind and that I would still embrace in time. And I fortunately was able to do that and have utilized compassion and all of my other business names. So it is absolutely a core value. It is what comes to mind when I think of all of my ventures, when I think of a therapist, when I think of a consultant, when I think of, you know, if I'm going to listen to someone's story, that's what I want to come through. I want compassion. I want someone who is able to really listen for the purpose of understanding that person, where they are, all of their struggles, all of their strengths, um, really meeting somebody where they are, but doing that with this humanistic perspective. And so, yeah, that was the starting point. And then it's taken off from there. Fabulous. So about now, so how many leaders within um, the practice do you have now that are Mm-hmm. reporting to you and, and leading a team below you? Yeah. So we started off with promoting two clinicians to clinical team lead positions. So they still carry a caseload, but it's a smaller caseload than is required of just a strictly full-time clinician. And they offset that time between supervising clinicians and some administrative tasks. So they get that opportunity to meet with me on a regular basis and be more involved in the decision-making and the planning and what's going on practice-wide. And so that was where we started. And then through these engagement surveys and hiring more staff and these touch point like meetings, it's become really evident that there are several other clinicians who have expressed interest in potentially supervising but also providing trainings and potentially doing some additional tasks within the practice. So I am currently in the process of developing some additional positions to allow them that opportunity to shine, to contribute, to obviously like have a level of investment in the practice beyond just standard employee. And so it's kind of in the process of morphing right now. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. So do, do when you talk about the feedback from the surveys and things like that, is that where you get most of your, I don't even want to say pushback because it mm. sounds very collaborative, but do you get most of your kind of ideas or like, hey, I'd like to do something differently from the surveys? Is that where they feel safest or through the touch points or how do you Great get question. That So I will say that our expansion is still relatively new. So our first full-time employee was hired in May, 2021. 
So we are now up to 16 clinicians. We have eight that are full-time, eight that are part-time. So it has been such exponential growth and they kind of all came in waves. It was three different waves. So we kind of started off with one and then morphed into the other. So I would say the monthly check-ins with me are definitely a great opportunity to discuss some of this stuff. But what I was noticing is that it so much happens in the course of a month. We also have monthly team meetings. So that's like our staff meeting, but it's the opportunity for everybody to come together. And so it's obviously providing updates. There are some opportunities for feedback, but I would say the surveys were the first opportunity where I was actually really conscientious with consistent questions across the board, not only a rating scale, but also a comment section. And really conveying in writing that what I'm looking for is not solely CCC and me related, but also how can we support you as a person? What are What is your level of stress in a typical week? What is the main source of stress? Like even looking beyond just the practice. And then work-life balance, rate it. And what are some things that can be done to improve that? And then what are your goals professionally and how can we help you achieve it? So I hope that the message was conveyed that, yes, we definitely want a clear sense of what's going on here. And do you feel like you're supported and that you're getting what you need? But then there's also, uh, I recognize this is like one stop on a journey. And how can I help you get to the next level? And that we care about you and your life, not just you and your work. I love that. So how how does all of that deliberate and accidental mm-hmm. kind of work that you've done to create that culture, how does that translate? Like what does, if you had to describe your organization's culture, what would that look like? To, mm-hmm. How would you describe it to somebody else? So definitely collaborative. You use that word and that totally resonates. A lot of the clinicians have described that it feels like a family. And so I think when you ultimately build a team, you have to consciously make a decision to go in one lane or the other. It is either going to be the type of place where people show up, they do their job, and they go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that can totally serve a purpose. And that is in line with many people. Or it can be the type of place that goes beyond that. And I think we have created a very professional, respectful, but collaborative team where people feel heard, they have a say, and that their level of involvement is really up to them. So to be a full-time clinician, this is the minimum requirement as far as clients. But from there, the sky is the limit. So if you reach out to me, there has not been anyone who has come to me with an idea for a group or to run a workshop or to provide a training or something that they want to pursue that I have ever said no. And it's always been a, how can we make that happen? Can I help you with that compensation for it? Can we spread the word and market it for you? How can we help you get there? So I feel like that is ultimately how I would describe it. And I'd also say that there are some challenges, but ultimately beauty in private practice. So it's very different than a traditional job where the minimum requirement is 25 clients a week. So uh, clinical hour is not the same as a traditional hour in another job because there's documentation involved and there's a lot of collateral communication in between. And obviously we have like our meetings and our supervision, but it does really afford a higher clinical rate than a typical hour, but more flexibility and more autonomy for people to get really creative about maybe working four days a week, starting late one day, ending early, 
you know, so it can really work around their lifestyle, but it's an adjustment because a lot of people are going from, let's say a 40 hour salary to 25 hours. And even though, like I said, it's at a higher rate than most jobs, it doesn't always equal out. So great for work-life balance potentially, but I would not recommend that many people see more than 25 clients because it is very emotionally intense work. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the word family as part of the culture, because I hear two camps, right? I hear the camp where I do want to feel like it's a family and that we support each other and that we're seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And they describe family in a different way and think that it's a good thing, a good Mm -hmm. describer. And then I also hear the camp like, no, we're not a family. You don't have to like me. You know, mm-hmm. we are, families can be really dysfunctional. You know, there's always a black sheep in a family. There's always the crazy uncle and Thanksgiving, right? Like, I don't sure. want to be a family member. I, you are a professional. I respect you. I like you. You deserve my respect regardless, just just because you're here, not because of, so there's this two camps mm-hmm. of family. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on, because you have an organization that has a very specific employee, right? You all do the similar type of work and it takes a really special person to be that clinician type of person, Mm. that social work person. So I'm wondering whether, you know, family obviously fits for you guys. So I'm absolutely not Mm. saying you shouldn't say that at all, um, but just wanting to hear your reflections on that idea of family. Oh, that's such an important distinction. And I appreciate you saying that because you're already getting the gears turning in my mind. So what I would say is when a clinician identifies that working for a compassionate counseling company is like a family, I absolutely take that as a compliment. But we as mental health practitioners can understand, I think, more than most what that can ultimately mean for some people, because you're right. I think I'd have to come up with a new word for how to describe it. So the elements of a family that I'm picking up on are the fact that it does go beyond a traditional job. So it's not to the extent of a family, everyone has a choice. This is not necessarily right for everyone. It may serve a purpose for a period of time and then they move on. But I think what I am interpreting them meaning is that they have much more of a say and more of a level involvement than they would in a typical work environment and that there is more accountability and there is more responsibility for one another in the realm of support. So I know from firsthand experience, I could not have a long-term career in this field if I did not have support, whether that's a consultation group, whether that's a good supervisor, whether that's a team meeting. And that's really where we excel. So like I said, we have the team meetings, everyone gets assigned to a point person for clinical issues. And then we have peer consultation groups. So every other week, there are these opportunities for everyone to come together and present cases and provide strategies and direction and resources. So that's kind of what I mean, that it is more comprehensive than a typical work environment. And I think we have that luxury, like you said, of there is like this organizational chart, but that we're all trained mental health professionals. And for the most part, at a baseline, doing the same work, but then we can evolve from there. Yeah, love that. Thank Mm -hmm. you for going through that because I could already hear somebody listening and like, yeah, you know, family, you're obligated in a family, you, you know, so I like where you said, you know, people have a choice 
there's an additional yes. accountability to one another and responsibility to support one another, but it's the choice. It's always a choice. Well, and I've really tried to get good at being clear about the expectations at the outset. And I think that's another really important distinction. We can be so much more successful when we know what is expected of us at the outset. It's like you have this contract, your employment contract or the consent forms we have clients sign. You're setting yourself up for success. And that doesn't mean you can't veer from it. Every individual is unique. Every situation is unique. And you can be as flexible as the situation requires but you can always come back to, but this is the standard. And I think that's also another important distinction that has helped us as we fine tuned, be successful. But that's another distinction where like in a family, you don't have a rule book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The clear expectations is such a core fundamental thing for a successful management and leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so I have one last question for you that, and that's looking at the horizon What's your next mountain you want to climb? What's the next kind of challenge you want to tackle or the next milestone that you want to uh, go after? So I'm actually at a point in my life and in my career where I'm trying to do a better job of pausing, reflecting, and acknowledging where I've come. Because I think we can all relate to it is so easy to focus on that next thing. We do not, as a society, give ourselves enough credit or acknowledgement for the work we do, for the effort we put in, and for those like little moments that are truly miracles. So I'm really trying to embrace that. But what I would say, because unfortunately, stagnation and complacency are my biggest enemies, I'm always thinking about what's next while trying to embrace what I have and appreciate what I have. Retreats. So retreats are all the rage in the world, but also in the mental health community, especially. So it's this opportunity for like-minded professionals to come together in the same place and to really simultaneously support one another, receive information, training, wisdom, consultation, but then also really experience wherever they are. And you have that now collective experience. And so there's this idea of like slowing down to speed up. When you separate yourself from your day-to-day -day environment and when you're around other people who can appreciate who you are and what you're all about and relate and normalize, you can potentially catapult your creativity and your innovation. And you always look back on that experience for what it was and the people you shared it with. So I have signed up for several this year and they start next month and I am so looking forward to it. And my intention was really that I wanted to provide one for my staff. So my thought was what better way than to experience it, ask questions, absorb it, experience the benefits, and then take it to that next level and be able to provide it myself. I love that. So many times, especially business owners and executives forget to nurture their own development. And, you know, they figure if I, if I have talent or if I have training money, it needs to go to my team or mm -hmm. I don't have time or whatever the excuse is. And mm -hmm. so I love that you are, your next milestone is I'm going to develop myself and give myself more information so that I can then deliver that down as opposed to saying to one of your team leads, oh, you go on the retreat, right? Mm -hmm. And you tell me, you report back. Um, I love that you're kind of putting mm -hmm. yourself in the, on the front line, as it were, to really figure out if this is what works best for the organization and mm -hmm. help develop yourself as well. So that's fabulous. I'm looking forward well, to it. 
what can is there anything you want to tell the listeners about um your organizations what you do where they can find you or connect with you if they have questions or need sure. your services so compassionate counseling is located in fall river mass so that's southeastern mass and the majority of our clinicians are licensed in massachusetts and rhode island so if someone is looking for counseling or we run groups so we have a motherhood empowerment group we are going to be starting um trans family and friends support group. So for those individuals that have someone in their life that identifies, it's a place for them to come for support. So we're always running different groups. So coming to our website and, and keeping up on that, we also have a newsletter. And then for the consulting, so if anyone is listening and is interested in starting a business or maybe expanding their team or even diversifying, like adding things such as a podcast or retreats or forensic mental health, uh, consulting, they can reach me at Compassionate Consulting Company, and I'd love if they would listen to The Compassionate Climb. It has been such an incredible passion project to have conversations with people like this that I would want to be having anyways, but I now get to share with a wider audience. And podcasts were so pivotal in my journey and such a great source of information. So it's been wonderful to be able to provide the same. Fabulous. And we'll make sure all of the links to those things are in the description. So. Well, thank you so much, Julia. It's been such a great time to talk with you and learn about your leadership journey. It's been inspiring for me and relevant to so many things that I do day to day. So hopefully it's the same for our listeners. So thanks so much. I cannot thank you enough. They were great questions and I feel very positive about where this went. So I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Evolving Executive Podcast. Found everywhere podcasts are available. You can check out all of the links and resources mentioned in the episode and catch up on all of the podcast episodes at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com.